Hey, everyone. Welcome to Alpha Chat, the business and economics podcast from the Financial Times. I'm Amy Keene. Today on the show, a conversation with Dan Dresner. Last September, former host Cardiff Garcia spoke to the political scientist and writer about his latest book, The Ideas Industry, How Pessimists, Partisans, and Plutocrats Are Changing the Marketplace of Ideas. Here's their chat. Dan, fascinating book, warmly recommended. And I think before we start talking about the ideas in the ideas industry, we need to kind of uh, establish a foundation on which to base that conversation. So I want to start with two different distinctions. One is between a public intellectual and a thought leader, uh, and the other one is going to be between the marketplace of ideas and the ideas industry. Uh, So yeah, let's start with that first one. The phrase thought leader makes me shudder. Thought leader, what is it and how does it contrast with a public intellectual? So the the way I would say that you should think about this is that Isaiah Berlin wrote a very uh, well-known essay about intellectuals called uh, The Hedgehog and the Fox, basically arguing that there were two kinds of intellectuals out there. There was the fox who knows uh, a little bit about a lot of things, and then there's the hedgehog who knows one big thing. And so when I talk about public intellectuals in the book, I'm primarily thinking of them as Isaiah Berlin's foxes, which is to say that they are experts. They presumably are trained in one area of expertise or another, but they are perfectly willing to opine about areas far beyond their area of expertise. Um, they're presumably smart enough to, to do that. And they're sort of, as, as uh, Friedrich von Hayek put it, they're sort of secondhand traffickers in ideas. But most importantly, public intellectuals are critics. Public intellectuals excel at telling you everything that is wrong with everyone else's idea. And so to some extent, when whenever there's a new idea that, that's coming up, public intellectuals almost play a job like whack-a-mole. They will try to, to beat it down or sort of stress test the idea. Thought leaders, on the other hand, and that's certainly a, a term that has come from the business world, thought leaders are Isaiah Berlin's hedgehogs, um, which is to say they have one big idea. Um, and so if public intellectuals are critics – Thought leaders are evangelists. They have one big idea that they think can explain everything, and they want to proselytize that idea to everyone within earshot or within access to a computer. And so if you throw at them any kind of other problem in the world, they will somehow find a way to retrofit it or explain how their idea can explain it. Um, in some ways, thought leaders are like the uh, the father in uh, My Big Fat Greek Wedding, where the, the guy thought that, that essentially Windex could cure everything and that Windex would take care of any problem. In some ways, thought leaders are like that, but with their own idea. You mean that's not true? It could very well be true. Sometimes there's a really good idea and that pulls pulls it off. That'd be the way I would uh, distinguish between the two. Public intellectuals tend to be more like uh, more critics. They tend to be more pessimistic thought leaders. Uh, are evangelists. They tend to be more optimistic. Yeah, uh, to, to use, uh, I guess, the uh, the modern jargon also, it seems like the way you describe public intellectuals is that they tend to stay in their lane a bit more. You know, They tend to try to get right what they're saying, whereas thought leaders in many ways are responding to demand from wherever it arises. And your book is very much about new sources of demand for thought leadership, but they also seem to embody as much a way of being out in public as much as people who are actually trying to get at something about the world with the same kind of fervor that a public intellectual displays. No, I think it's a safe statement. I mean, as you say, public intellectuals tend to be reasonably well-trained. And so when they talk about whether or not something is true or not, they will do so very often with all of the hedging and emendations that are necessary because the world is a messy, complex place, and very often a simple idea doesn't explain everything. But on the other hand, thought leaders will often come to a a situation arguing that the current state of knowledge, the current conventional wisdom is badly flawed, um, in no small part because experts are prisoners of their training um, or their, their prior experience. And so as a result, they want to come and say, look, here's a completely different way of thinking about it. So I, I guess the way I would put it is that you know, one of the, the phenomena that I talk about in the book is the rise of the TED Talk as a, a sort of means of, of communicating ideas. Thought leaders do far better in terms of TED Talks than public intellectuals. Both can do it, but in some ways the TED Talk is is designed for a thought leader because a TED Talk is all about how, hey, I bet you thought that this is the way the world works. Well, what if I told you this is actually the way the world works? And then, you know, sort of totally blows your mind and then it ends with a standing ovation. Yeah, also a bias towards a can-do attitude versus 
being content with just a description of the world as it works. Exactly. That's correct. Okay. Let's uh, go to that second distinction, uh, the marketplace of ideas versus the ideas industry. Right. So the marketplace of ideas is, is a sort of older term, and it generally refers to the notion of the sort of body of ideas that are out there in terms of thinking about how do you want to influence either publics or policymakers of proper ways to think about the world, problems that they should focus their attention on, solutions to those problems, what have you. What I am arguing in the book is that essentially there's been a, a couple of sort of tectonic shifts in American political economy that have actually transform the marketplace of ideas into the ideas industry, which is in that to say that in some ways it has never been more profitable to be an intellectual um, flogging ideas than, than now. Um, and the three trends that I talk about are the erosion of trust in uh, authority and expertise, the rise of political polarization, and the rise of economic inequality. So in turn, the erosion of trust in experts and, and, and authority, you know, you can take a look at any kind of polling evidence out there Essentially, beginning in about 1965 and continuing for the next 50 years, there has been a slow, steady erosion of trust in almost every major social institution in this country, with the exception of the U.S. military. So it's not just the government. I mean, there's no trust in government has fallen precipitously, but trust in big business, trust in the media, trust in teachers, trust in labor unions. All these institutions have declined. This also includes traditional knowledge-based institutions, such as the academy or medicine, um, or even religion, where, according to a general social survey, back in uh, 1974, the median level of trust in those institutions among Americans was approximately 50%. In 2012, it had been down to 30%. So what this means is, is that Americans don't necessarily trust their traditional sources of intellectual authority, and they are therefore seeking out new sources of ideas, and they want to hear new kinds of ideas. The second trend that I talk about is the rise of political polarization. And again, the, the public opinion data on this is inescapable. Basically, Democrats have moved to the left. Republicans have moved way, way, way to the right. This is particularly concentrated among political elites, sort of party activists, to where they have not just become more ideologically extreme. They also look on the other side of the ideological spectrum with far more distrust and, frankly, malice to the point where if you are – a democratic activist, you do not want your child to marry outside of their political persuasion in the same way that a generation or two generations ago we'd be concerned about children marrying outside of religion. Um, and indeed, there's been survey, experimental surveys done where it shows that hardcore political activists are more likely to discriminate in terms of hiring based on someone's political philosophy more so than race or gender or sexual orientation. Now, both these trends that I talk about essentially stack the deck in favor of thought leaders at the expense of public intellectuals. So the problem with public intellectuals is that they tend to reside in traditional sort of uh, sinecures of authority. They are tenured professors or think tank fellows or MacArthur Genius Grant winners or Pulitzer Prize winners or so on and so forth. And 30 or 40 years ago, that would have counted for a lot. But nowadays, that doesn't necessarily mean that much. And therefore, the sort of barriers to entry have been lowered for thought leaders to enter the, the conversation. Similarly, the rise of political polarization does the same thing. Most public intellectuals tend to be somewhat heterodox. They might argue – I mean, you know, they might be more traditionally on the left, but they might say, well, I think conservatives have a point when it comes to, let's say, education or when it comes to uh, deterrence in, in foreign affairs or so forth. But partisans don't want to hear heterodox points of view. They want to hear points of view that confirm what they already believe is true. And so they will gravitate more to thought leaders that essentially tell them that whatever it was they believed was true already actually is true. And so this creates a market opening for the Dinesh D'Souza's of the world, people who 25 years ago might have actually been thought of as truly reputable intellectuals speaking to their critics as well as to their, their supporters, but nowadays don't care what their critics think. They only are caring to their partisan bases. And then the third trend, and the most important one, I argue, is the rise of, of economic inequality. That, uh, you know, again, the data here is pretty incontrovertible. Life has been really, really good for the 1%, but life has been super awesome for the 0.01%. And so this kind of plutocratic class, as they've made more money, has basically decided that what they want to do with that money is to go back to college. But they don't go back to college. They don't even necessarily contribute to colleges. What they do is go on an extended circuit of sort of big think conferences, whether we're talking about the World Economic Forum in Davos or South by Southwest or the TED conference 
or the Milken Global Conference or what have you. Or they create the intellectual salons of their own and actually bring in sort of mandarins to tell them, you know, interesting uh, policy ideas. But this is all to the good. It's, it's good that someone like Bill Gates or Mark Zuckerberg or the Koch brothers really care about ideas. But the really, really rich tend to have a different set of ideas than the rest of the population. Um, they tend to be more skeptical about the government provision of public goods. And they also tend to look at political conflict not necessarily as an intractable fact of life, but rather as a faulty piece of code that needs to be bypassed or hacked. And so as a result, they are more drawn to thought leaders who are perfectly willing to tell them that there is some sort of new idea that will liberate or transform the way we think about things, much more so than public intellectuals, um, who will often tell these people that they got to where they're, they're stationed in life, not because of their own ingenuity or because um, of their own skill and will, but because maybe, just maybe, they were born on third base. Yeah. Dan, I want to get into each of those big trends uh, a little bit more and unpack them. Uh, But first, I have a a question about psychology, which your book is chock full of, not on the surface, but it sort of runs underneath it because, of course, we're talking about ideas, how ideas manage to gain influence, how they persuade us. And usually people have an aversion to mixing ideas with money. But this book is about the ideas industry, and I want to talk about that, the ideas industry as an industry, because I think a lot of us are really uncomfortable with thinking of the sort of life of the mind as something that is constantly being polluted with money, conflicts of interest in the sort of typical narrative, or if you want to get into like darker conspiracy thinking, like nefarious things being financed by like the Koch brothers or whoever who are trying to sort of use their money to find a way to influence politicians and to elevate the importance of their ideas. Something I liked about the book was that it takes seriously the idea that this is actually very nuanced, the relationship between ideas and money, because ideas are, of course, put forth by people who need to pay mortgages and send their kids to school and these kinds of things. And so it's not always easy to disentangle the source of influence or the very real need for money to play a role somewhere, even if it's less money than is being, you know, thrown around now, but somewhere money needs to come into it. And we need to confront that rather than pretend that ideas are always going to exist in this very pure space. Right. So I mean, I would say a few things on this. You know, I mean, we've seen this recently, you know, the scandal or the the controversy surrounding, let's say, the New America Foundation, where Anne-Marie Slaughter, who runs the New America Foundation, wound up dismissing one of the initiatives, I believe it was called Open Markets, that was focusing on an anti-monopoly position because that group had gone after Google, um, which was one of the primary funders of the New America Foundation. Indeed, Google's CEO, Eric Schmidt, uh, you know, basically emailed Anne-Marie saying, what the hell is going on here? Yeah, worth noting also that Eric Schmidt, in addition to being a huge contributor to New America, was also uh, a board member, I think, until last year. Right, exactly. And, you know, this is one of these things where the original story, I think, makes it seem like, oh, my God, I can't believe Slaughter did that. There's such a craven, you know, slave to the funding. And I actually think the story is a little more nuanced than that, where open markets knew full well what was going to happen. And indeed, the very fact that they were poised to set up a website and set up their own shop immediately after they got dismissed indicates they had laid the groundwork for this for quite some time. And also, you know, Anne-Marie Slaughter, as the CEO of the New America Foundation, has to obviously be concerned with the integrity of the ideas the think tank is producing, and I don't mean to dismiss that, but she also has to be concerned with the fact that she is also an employer of a whole variety of people who is dependent on funding in order for them to be able to continue to be employed. And I think it made it clear to the head of open markets that this was a thing long before the sort of final uh, rupture. But the other way I would say this is that one of the inspirations for this book was a book that David Brooks actually wrote, I believe, back in 2000, called Bobos in Paradise. Uh, And he was talking about bourgeois bohemians in that book. He wrote a great chapter in that book on the intellectual life of bourgeois bohemians, where he pointed out that essentially one of the things that has changed over time is that you can now be a successful intellectual and actually carve out a comfortable middle class or even upper middle class lifestyle if you attain, you know, if you get to the top of the intellectual food chain. And while, and, and we'll talk about this later, I certainly think that intellectuals are inspired by far more than money. I also think it's insane to think that intellectuals will, you know, act like medieval monks and essentially engage in in self-abnegation 
uh, and deny themselves the the notion of material uh, benefits. It it, it suggests it, I mean they would actually have to behave like monks in the form of not having children or having families to look after. Okay, let's now dig into those three trends that you discussed earlier. Again, just to repeat them, uh, they are less trust in authority figures, more political polarization, and rising economic inequality. Since you already introduced uh, each of those ideas, uh, let me ask uh, the first question on less trust in authority figures, because I think something you write about in the book is whether or not they deserve less trust, whether or not the old school purveyors of ideas and of economic and political wisdom did kind of spend a couple of decades screwing up. And in some ways, they deserve a little bit less trust from the public. Right. I think the best way to think about this is to sort of ask the question, what is the optimal level of trust that we should have in authoritative institutions? And I think you can argue that the the level of trust we had in the mid-1960s was probably too high. I mean, there's a, as, I, as I do say in the book, there were really good reasons why the public distrust institutions now. You know, there was the Vietnam War. There was Watergate. Um, and then in this century, there is the war in Iraq. There is the 2008 financial crisis. There have been a lot of screw-ups made by uh, the sort of best and the brightest, as it were. And I think a healthy dose of skepticism is absolutely warranted. I would argue, however, we have now gone way too far in the opposite direction to the point where and, – and I reference this book, but Tom Nichols wrote a, a great book called The Death of Expertise that also gets to this point that basically suggests that you know we should absolutely trust no one. And, and I, that's an insane way to go through life because you can argue that even if experts – and groups of experts occasionally make mistakes, in most areas of, of sort of public policy, they are probably going to be far more often to be right than wrong. Um, and so while certainly a healthy degree of skepticism is necessary, and I think unfortunately we tend to highlight cognitively, we tend to notice the mistakes that are made far more than the, uh, the successes that occur. I do think that there's a danger of having too much skepticism because essentially the, the analogy I use in terms of the marketplace of ideas is that a world in which you have a lot of public intellectuals but not a lot of thought leaders is one where the barriers to entry are probably too high. Um, it becomes harder for someone to inject a new idea into the marketplace. It becomes sort of stagnant and ossified. And that's a problem because we always need new ideas because we're always going to encounter new problems. The problem we have now is the reverse, which is – we have a lot of thought leaders and not as many public intellectuals. And so as a result, the problem isn't the barriers to entry being high. The barriers to exit are too high, which means that you can introduce an idea and unfortunately stupid ideas don't die. And that is a problem. The virtue of public intellectuals, it's not just coming up with good new ideas. It's also shooting down really, really dumb ideas. That's in some ways the more important thing. And if public intellectuals are disempowered – or discredited or not believed as much, then it means when they try to shoot down an idea, it doesn't necessarily succeed. And so that's a, and as a result, a really dumb idea can persist for a long period of time. Yeah, Dan, there's a, a, an epistemic uh, or epistemological question here, though, because it's not always obvious when an idea, a new idea or an idea that challenges a conventional wisdom really is dumb or if it just appears dumb at the time. And we have some high-profile cases of instances where there was also a problem of attitude rather than just of dismissing what seemed like a dumb idea. So I'm, I'm going to give you the three that came to mind as I was reading the book and then just sort of ask you to, to talk about this. There were these protests in Seattle in the late 90s against free trade, against the WTO. And I think from the economics commentariat, the general thinking was – these people are a bunch of hippies. They don't know anything about David Ricardo. They don't understand Economics 101, et cetera, et cetera. And if you look at what happened in the subsequent generation, I guess, well, listen, I mean, I'm a total 100% free trader, but it also is the case that even though trade has fabulous on-net benefits, it also has very concentrated costs and that not everything that those protesters were talking about was nonsensical, but they were treated that way. The second, of course, was in the run-up to the financial crisis when everybody wanted to say that derivatives were these great things that spread risk across. Michael Lewis wrote a very sneering article against the people who were trying to warn about them. Larry Summers famously referred to Raghu Rajan as a Luddite for bringing this up. And look at what happened just a few years later. And then the most recent example I can think of was during the initial rise of the Occupy Wall Street 
protests where a lot of people pointed to them and said, yeah, but listen, like they're so scattered. They don't have a useful constructive agenda of their own. And this whole business of inequality, sure, okay, it matters, but it's not like a priority, even though in the subsequent years, we would see that inequality would rise very much to prominence within the economics industry. But at the time, 2011, the Occupy Wall Street protesters weren't treated as such. And I'll never forget one of the early interviews that uh, Aaron Burnett did with some of the Occupy Wall Street protesters. She went there and she thought she had this great gotcha point by saying, did you know that the banks that were bailed out are going to end up paying back all of the money that was lent to them by the taxpayer And it was a really sneering, condescending interview. It was also a really stupid question because as anybody who's ever taken an introductory finance class knows, you have to consider reward along with the risk that was taken by the taxpayers. So it was a really kind of idiotic approach to it. But it was also, I think, emblematic of the way a lot of people looked at the Occupy Wall Street protesters. Anyways, those three examples came to mind. And it sort of makes me wonder if the problem isn't just pushing back on dumb ideas, which I think everybody would agree is great. But also it's like one of attitude or lack of humility sometimes from public intellectuals and from others who criticize these ideas. So I think the middle part, the middle example you gave is the one that I think best illuminates what you're talking about, which is to say the fact that you did have a small group of people suggesting beginning in 2005, 2006, that we were in a bubble and that that steps should be taken. And one of the things I liked about Michael Lewis's book on this topic was his suggestion that the people who had decided that there was a bubble were people who were clearly socially maladjusted or awkward or, frankly, on the autism spectrum. I actually always talk about this this great example in my class when I ask, well, why didn't anyone point out that we were in a bubble? I talk about the case of Steve Eisman when he went in 2007, I think, to Las Vegas for the uh, the subprime mortgage conference where he stands up in the middle of this you know, keynote speech by the head CEO of Countrywide saying, wait, you're saying you only have a 5% default rate? You're going to have 50. At that point, his phone rings and he says, I've got to take this and he walks out. And as I always like to say, if you were anyone else sitting in that audience and you saw that exchange took place, would you trust the guy who just took the phone call? And they would all say no because he seemed to act like a jerk. But I do think that's a case where potentially there was there was a powerful consensus and there was a failure to appreciate the virtues of of sort of public intellectuals were pointing out that something was wrong. I think part of the part of that though might be due that in the in the case of bubbles, it is particularly tricky to do. Because to be fair, you did have people like Noriel Rubini or Robert Schiller, who beginning in 2003 or 2004, and these were respected economists. They weren't they weren't people who were thought of as cranks saying, look, we're in a bubble. This is going to be a, a thing. And you had people like Bob Rubin betting against the dollar. But the nature of bubbles and sort of discourse about bubbles is such that you better be right about that within six months or so, because otherwise you will lose money and the market is bigger than you are. And indeed, I think you can argue potentially that's where we are right now uh, with respect to the stock market, where you're already seeing, I think Schiller has said that, you know, we have all the makings of a bubble, except the fact that no one is saying that we're in a bubble. And so it'll be interesting to see going forward whether this is an instance in which Uh, the consensus continues. I would push back on the WTO case. I don't think that's a case where the protesters had a point because I think the effects of globalization were not what they were predicted it to be. In some ways, that was like Nouriel Roubini in in the mid-2000s. Roubini claimed that the problem was going to be that there would be a run on the dollar, um, which turned out to be the one thing that did not happen in the wake of 2008. You know, I I remember paying attention to the protesters in Seattle. What they were protesting was, was the notion that globalization was immiserating the poor and was leading to an erosion of labor and environmental standards and so on and so forth. Globalization did a lot of things in terms of, of wage inequality and things like that. But the one thing it didn't do was lead to a race to the bottom in those kinds of regulatory standards, and it certainly did not immiserate the poor. I would argue that the 15 years since then have actually suggested that that part's wrong. But but you're right in the sense that they were critics of globalization, and I believe at the time it was thought, well, that's just heresy. We shouldn't listen to them on that. And I think you can argue that it's now worth acknowledging the notion that globalization has downsides as well as upsides. Um, and this is a point that I think Danny Roderick has made in the mo- sort of most compelling way. And I, I, in some ways, I think that's probably also true about Occupy Wall Street, which is to say that, you know, and this is unique to economists, and this is another chapter that I write about in the book, which is to say that I think economists 
have excelled in the marketplace of ideas primarily because they act like thought leaders, which is to say they act as we have this clear set of ideas that we know are true and we will proselytize to everyone else. And one of those ideas, which is really a powerful one, is the notion of Pareto optimality. It's the notion that we shouldn't be focusing on questions of equality. We should be focusing on questions of efficiency. We can deal with equality later. And I think one of the, the, the valid points that the Occupy Wall Street crowd had is that, no, if you don't focus on equality, there wind up being some perverse outcomes of capitalism that can actually lead to inefficiency down the road as well. And this is in some ways the biggest fault, I think, that lies with the economics profession. Yeah, that's a great response. The second trend, I have another question about that. So this trend is greater political polarization. You have a, a phrase here, the market for ideologically homogenous thought leaders, and that this has been one of the really big influences on thought leaders that they end up having that one big idea and that it's a lot easier to sell that idea in an environment where there's greater political polarization because it maybe makes some ideas that in the past would have been fringy newly acceptable. Right. So think about, you know, on the on the Republican and we're seeing this right now within the United States, you know, in terms of the health care debate, the idea of single payer you know, as a healthcare policy solution. In 2008, Barack Obama explicitly rejects that. He doesn't think it's going to be politically saleable. He thinks it's, you know, too far in the extreme. And so winds up pushing a program that sort of co-ops the insurance industry and the sort of healthcare sector as a way of implementing that. And now, on the other hand, I don't know how many Democrats you're seeing embracing single payer as the solution to whatever, you know, problems are bedeviling Obamacare. On the right, on the other hand, you know, you've got the idea of the flat tax, the notion that the best way um, and most economically efficient way to collect revenue is through a straight, you know, single tax rate that reduces distortions and eliminates all deductions and exemptions. And wouldn't that be a superior way of, of doing it? And, you know, that was generally thought to be kind of a fantasy. But I guarantee you that the the Trump tax plan that's going to come out is going to bear more of a resemblance to the flat tax proposal than what we would sort of consider the, the current situation to be. So, yeah, the, the, in some ways – and I talk about this in the think tank chapter. There's this concept in, in Washington of the Overton window, which is what is the, the – what are the boundaries of acceptable policy proposals, policy proposals where you can put them forward and it would be acknowledged reasonable people can disagree on them as opposed to policy proposals that are so insane that, no, everyone's going to disagree with them. And I think polarization has essentially widened the Overton window on both sides. And the third category is rising economic inequality. And here my question isn't about this trend in particular because I think you already elucidated what was going on there, which is that rich people, uh, number one, are getting richer, but also they want to have a more hands-on attitude towards um, the ideas uh, that they put forth and the ideas that they believe in. I want to ask about the combination of all three, because I think this is a point that you make in the book, which is that these three trends individually can go up and down, right? Uh, they're cyclical. What's interesting now is that all three of them seem to be at a cyclical peak, right? And that it's the combination of yeah. those three things that's really having the biggest altering effect on the marketplace of ideas rather than anyone in particular. Can you sort of talk about what's special about those three things happening uh, in a way that's um, simultaneous, that, that's having such a big influence? Well, I mean, I think the obvious answer is that the, the, th the three reinforce each other, essentially. And in some ways, I don't necessarily think it changes how intellectuals behave. Uh, you know, I think it's a rare case of an intellectual who literally sacrifice what they believe in just in order to, you know, become a publicist for someone else's set of ideas because that's where the money is. It's more that the current marketplace empowers certain intellectuals at the expense of other intellectuals. So that someone who truly believes in the liberating power of capitalism to, you know, end a lot of, of, of uh, America's policy problems as well as be a, a you know, a, a force for, you know, promoting American power throughout the world is going to get a headier and more influential audience now than they would have 20 or 30 years ago. Or, and, and something I talk about in the book, the idea of disruptive innovation, Clayton Christensen's idea. Disruptive innovation is the perfect idea for the modern ideas industry, because it basically said it, it, it hits all three of these things. Disruptive innovation hits the erosion of trust and authority and expertise because it basically says 
all the things that leaders that like current established leaders and businesses are doing is wrong. That they're they're foolish to try to cater to their current clients. They should be concerned about the new new thing, the next thing around the corner, not you know sort of satiating the status quo. It works in terms of uh, polarization because essentially, uh, among other things, Clayton Christensen is on the conservative side of the spectrum, uh, which makes him a little more unusual even among the, the sort of business school community. But he essentially is able to sort of speak to, you know, not just people on the left, and, and that certainly pleases uh, a lot of conservatives. But most important, disruptive innovation is exactly the kind of idea that plutocrats want to hear because essentially it tells them, you need to break things and you will make lots of mistakes, but in the process you will eventually wind up in a greater, you know, position. And the, the brilliant thing about disruptive innovation as an idea, I think it's a genuinely interesting idea and I think it applies to certain sectors. It is also non-falsifiable. Disruptive innovation says you will do these ideas. They probably won't work in the short term, but they will eventually work in the long term. Once you find that one technology or one niche market and you move down the learning curve, you will eventually swamp and take over the whole market. What disruptive innovation says is that if you do this stuff in the short term, it will hurt you. It's a genius idea because it, it probably will happen. But what I don't think Christensen mentions is probably that nine times out of ten, not only will it not work in the short term, it won't work in the long run either. You know, And that one time out of ten, it might very well work. So in that sense, it, it empowers certain thought leaders who can suggest that they have the truly transformative idea that can transcend whatever sort of status quo exists either in business or also in politics. And again, that's also appealing. You know, we just had a poll out today by Gallup showing that I think 61% of, of Americans want a third party, which sounds like one of these great sort of disruptive innovation ideas of absolutely, we should totally propose a third party. Let's, you know, tear aside the established order. That's what we want. Of course, what that poll won't tell you is that I guarantee you that that 61% that wants a third party, none of them want the same third party. They all want third parties with different ideological agendas, and that's really important. If you don't Brent mention that fact, then just the 61% in and of itself doesn't mean anything. Yeah, th there's another uh, reason that I asked you about these um, three trends all kind of cresting at once. This requires a bit of a wind-up, but a theme that, that we've all, I think, read about quite a bit this year is that with each successive generation, we have to kind of redefine and reinforce like the principles that matter right so like for instance liberalism was on the decline for a while now we have a populist wave you know sweeping the u.s obviously and also the uk and parts of europe and this has happened before and it just means that we have to explain once again for a new generation why liberalism matters and also that we should have maybe expected it so take a really simple example uh to go back to like the issue of uh, of trade or even just you know the end of communism the rise of capitalism all that stuff right so you look at this and it's like all right well this is great, and the public intellectuals of the past sort of won that particular war, but that within the new establishment, it already contained within itself the seeds of its own deterioration, and this applies to good and bad trends. So, yes, okay, free trade is great, lower tariffs, but also you end up with a society that's maybe a little bit more economically volatile, even if in the long run it's also much, much healthier, right? And I guess the reason I'm asking this is because we have these three trends all cresting at once, and I'm wondering if you think that there are self-correcting mechanisms within each of those that will eventually lead to a much healthier balance between public intellectuals and thought leaders. Because maybe, yes, there's less trust in authority, but now everybody sees what that leads to, and maybe everybody will start craving a lot more trust in authorities or more authority expertise, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm enough of an optimist to hope that these are, in fact, self-correcting trends. And this is one of these things where I argue that, paradoxically, Donald Trump might make public intellectuals great again. Um, that essentially, in some ways, Trump – and I, I, talk, I say this in the book – Trump is the brassiest thought leader in existence in the sense that you know he's someone who – constantly puts out these insane, you know, truly crazy claims or assertions about how he's going to, you know, generate what, 6% economic growth in terms of his tax plan, or he's going to renegotiate the Iran deal, or renegotiate NAFTA, so on and so forth. And what has become clear, interestingly enough, in his first year in office, is the degree to which he act, there's no actual content to these slogans, that he's been so bad at actually, you know, 
importing genuine policy intellectuals into the government, that he keeps putting forward these ideas, but then when you actually see the details or when you actually see what's being proposed, they are really bad ideas. And what has been fascinating to me has been watching the degree to which Trump has been checkmated time and again by the ideas industry. So, you know, the health care, the attempt to reform, uh, repeal and replace Obamacare. Every time the Republicans have come up with a new plan, you wind up with a CBO analysis and a whole variety of other think tank analyses that demonstrate that most of these would have debilitating effects on, on Americans' access to health care. And, and indeed, these are so such obvious analyses that even conservative critics of Obamacare basically all have all acknowledged that whether we're talking about AHCA or BHCA or Graham-Cassidy, all of them were bad alternatives, that they, they were all worse than, than the original Obamacare. Similarly, on Trump's proposal to eliminate transgender troops from the military, you know, the day he comes out with that, Rand tweets out, hey, by the way, we did a study on this last year, and the White House has claimed that, like, transgender troops, you know, represent a crippling cost in the military in terms of health expenses is not true. And, and we're, you know, we're also seeing this with respect to debates about whether the U.S. should withdraw from NAFTA or whether we should preserve our Article 5 commitment to NATO and so on and so forth. Weirdly, Trump has become less and less powerful as an exe- you know, as the president, it turns out, because among others, everyone has concluded that he actually doesn't really have any ideas. You know, and so... I am hopeful in that sense that just as you can argue that Trump was sort of a political reaction to Barack Obama as president, who in some ways was sort of a genuine intellectual as president in a lot of ways, I'm hoping that the reaction to Trump is that we actually elect a genuine expert next time. Yeah, uh, I'm so glad you brought up that conflict between Trump and the ideas industry uh, and sort of right thinking opinion. I have a question that I think lies at the intersection between this book, the ideas industry, and your own expertise uh, as a political scientist, right? It also requires a bit of a windup, so give me a moment to set it up here. Alberto Hirschman, who I know is a hero of yours, uh, wrote this great essay in the early 1990s about the kinds of social conflicts or societal conflicts that are healthy versus the kinds that are destructive. And the way he distinguishes between the two is as follows. On the one hand, societal debates, disagreements, conflicts that are about things that are divisible, where compromise is actually possible, tend to actually have a cohesive effect. They can be actually quite healthy, whereas things that are indivisible, right, that can't be split up, where compromise is much more difficult to reach, tend to be really quite destructive. And I I need to... That sounds obvious, so I need to use a couple of examples. So, for instance, if, say, there's a big national debate about whether we should spend more for the military, as conservatives might want, or on uh, infrastructure or on Medicare, as liberals might want, well, maybe you'll get some of the money that you want spent on the military, and maybe I'll get some of the money spent on infrastructure. This is a pretty healthy debate to have, right? Whereas if we have a debate on gay marriage or abortion or something like that, where it's like you're for or against it, This is a little bit more destructive. And this is where we get to um, the ideas industry. I'm wondering if you think that the rise of the ideas industry has led to the proliferation or the acceptability of one kind of idea, maybe more on the indivisible side versus the divisible side, or has it just led to more ideas across the board? That's a really interesting question. I would tend to think... It's a little bit of both, but I would argue primarily it would give rise to more identity-based ideas. In some ways – and this ties into the political polarization trend in particular, which is to say that what you now see is that very often what thought leaders will do is come up with an argument of saying you, you are the forgotten in our country and and, the sort of people in Washington don't pay any attention to you and what you need is recognition. Rather than talk to Hirschman, what I'd, I'd fall back on is Frank Fukuyama, um, who in his in his book, The End of History and Last Man, that book has been widely derided because it's argued, oh, history is ending. That's silly. Ha ha ha. A, a closer reading of Fukuyama shows that it's a much more subtle argument. But one of the things that Fukuyama talks about in that book is that man not only needs material satisfaction, he also needs recognition. And you can argue that one of the things that that thought leaders occasionally do is suggest this particular category of individuals has been neglected in the marketplace of ideas, and we need to pay attention to them. And so as a result, it causes those 
the people within that category to think of themselves as part of a larger organic whole, um, even if that organic whole is actually socially constructed. And so whether it consists of extreme Republicans or populists or, for that matter, philanthrocapitalists, you know, the, the, the most powerful ideas are the ones that have sufficient heuristic punch that it winds up altering someone's identity who believes that idea. And so in that sense, yeah, I, I think it probably would play something of a contributing role to what Hirschman was talking about. I, I bring it up also because there's been so much debate and also, you know, actual political action taken uh, on immigration this year. And it right. seems to me like a really healthy debate for the country to have is what are the right levels of high-skilled immigrants versus low-skilled immigrants, overall immigration flows each year. That would actually be a really healthy debate to have, right? But that's, but that's not what the debate we're having. No, the debate really we're having not. is The debate we're having is, is, you know, immigrants are not American. It becomes a question between real Americans versus other Americans. Right. And something that you and I have both written about is the book by uh, Jan Werner Mueller about populism that came out last year. And he makes the point that populism is not just limited to what is anti-elite, which is where everybody sometimes stops with their discussion of populism. It also has to do with anti-pluralism, with exclusionary politics, with the idea that there is one person who is enlightened about what the people really want. And therefore, any contestation of what he says, therefore, means you are not of the right kind of people, right? Right. No, and he, he even goes further than that. It's like it, it, populists have a definition of the people that is inevitably exclusionary, that it, that, that is only part of the people, actually. Exactly. And it, it seems to me like uh, what Trump does uh, is that when he starts having a conversation about stuff that requires more than like a third grade level of concentration – and then that inevitably doesn't work, he pivots to the other stuff, to the stuff that's indivisible, to the exclusionary stuff, uh, because it's a way of bringing up his base. And I don't know exactly how to tie this to the ideas industry, but it, it reminded me that a figure that's not in your book was uh, Stephen Bannon, right, who's had some influence on the president, but whose ideas seem to come from like Christian mystics from 100 years ago rather than from something like a conservative think tank uh, or anything like that. Well, I mean, Bannon definitely represents a thought leader in this sense, you know, and, and in some way, no, he, he, he does um, in the sense of he really is someone who looks at the modern Republican Party and has decided that it's badly broken um, and that, you know, he has this sort of weird melange of ideas that are simultaneously sort of, you know, what domestically we would consider conventionally Republican in the form of ta lower taxes and, and more deregulation, but internationally looks much more like someone on the hard left in the sense of it's very economically populist and wants to have, you know, mercantilist trade policies and general distrust of the rest of the world, um, almost, you know, Jacksonian in terms of that, that kind of philosophy. Uh, so in that sense, I think it definitely he, – he would fall definitely into the thought leader category, also because in, in some ways it's – he can't be falsified. That's occasionally a, a problem as well. The other way in which I think this ties into this, one of the ways in which identity-based arguments are appealing to thought leaders is that it becomes much harder to prove them wrong. You know, public intellectuals, if they see a policy proposal, will be able to say, this is going to lead to this outcome. Anyone who claims this is going to create millions and millions of jobs, no, it will create a couple hundred thousand jobs at best. You know, that's not going to be the same thing. On the other hand, if a thought leader is saying, I'm going to do this, I'm going to pull out of the Paris Climate Change Accords because coal miners in West Virginia have been neglected and I want to show them that, that I'm putting them first, it's almost impossible for a public intellectual to rebut that argument because how do you even measure that kind of thing? And there are ways in which you know, if you can appeal to someone's emotions, it means that even if the idea is wrong or for that matter – somewhat superfluous, it becomes harder for a public intellectual to critique it. That's an interesting point. I hadn't thought about that until you brought this up. So, yeah. Well, listen, I, I think we've done a, a great job of sort of setting up the, the general environment. I'm really glad that you touched on how the ideas industry affected some of the institutions um, that you describe in your book. But I was hoping we could also just go through each of them um, sure. and sort of describe how it's affected them specifically. Uh, right. Let's start with uh, the academy. 
So the ideas industry has not been great for the academy. Um, I would argue that individual academics have th learned how to th survive and thrive in the ideas industry, but the academy writ large faces some deeper challenges. And if we look at the sort of three trends that I talked about, all of these three trends cut against uh, universities. The, uh, the first trend, which is the erosion of trust and authority, that extends to higher education. Um, in the sense of, you know, there's a deep distrust of, of the academy uh, as sort of the arbiter of truth in, in some ways. And I think part of this is tied into an extraneous trend, but nonetheless matters a lot, which is skyrocketing tuition prices to the point where, you know, people who are paying tuition for their children and the, those who are going to school no longer view themselves as students. They view themselves as customers. And that leads to problematic outcomes. Another deeper problem within the academy in terms of trying to influence the uh, marketplace of ideas has been the undeniable shift among academics to the left. Um, and the data here is pretty incontrovertible. UCLA's Higher Education uh, Research Institute shows polling in which academics, you know, in 1990, I believe, the ratio of sort of liberals to conservatives in the academy was something like two to one. Now it's six to one. And this creates two problems, I think, for academic in interventions in the marketplace of ideas. The first is, is that it's not that, that liberal academics automatically do bad research. I don't think that's the case. But it is the case that sort of greater homogeneity within the academy means that there are certain questions that liberal academics won't ask because they are uncomfortable. Um, and so in that sense, I think, I think political heterogeneity within the academy is a, would be a good thing. The second problem is more political, which is you could have the most peerless – you know, brilliant research that is that comes out arguing that liberals, are, let's say, are right about health care um, or right about the Iran deal. And if that comes out, you know, it'll make a lot of headlines. And let's say Fox News has a segment on this particular report. They will bring in someone to rebut it and say, well, what do you have to say to that? All that conservative has to do is say, well, you know, this is just another you know, report by an out-of-touch, elitist, liberal academic that doesn't have any sense of how the real world works. And you know what? There's a grain of strong grain of truth to that, which is that person probably is a liberal elite, you know, a, a liberal elite. And so even if it's an extraneous criticism, it's nonetheless a correct one. And so I think that's an issue. And then finally, with respect to the, the trend of the, the rise of plutocrats, you know, Plutocrats are now sort of philanthrocapitalists, which is to say, in contrast to the Rockefellers and MacArthur's of old, they want to see impact based on the investments they make now. And they are leerier of investing in universities because universities insist on things like a distance between the donor and what the money is actually put forward. Um, they don't want donors intervening in terms of what should be read and what should not be read in a uh, in a course or who should be hired and who should not be hired. And philanthrocapitalists will therefore take their money elsewhere. But Dan, to be fair to academics, uh, you also rebut a fairly constant criticism that I think holds maybe a little bit less water, which is that academics are always speaking to each other and writing for each other in a kind of jargonized language that's totally inaccessible to the layman. Your point is, well, okay, there's some truth to that. But number one, that's always been happening. And number two, actually... A lot of academics are doing a pretty decent job nowadays of writing uh, in you know, publications like the Washington Post or the Financial Times or going on TV uh, and getting their message out there in language that is plain and easily understood. Right. So part of the, the, the framing of that chapter was based on an op-ed that Nick Kristof wrote uh, uh, for The New York Times saying, why can't professors be more relevant? This was in 2014. And I think one of the amusing things about that op-ed was that it immediately triggered this wave of, of criticism from academics. But these, these academics weren't writing this criticism in the journal of abstruse ideas. They were writing it in The Washington Post and in foreign policy um, and in a whole variety of blogs and on Twitter and so on and so forth to the point where I think Kristoff was sort of surprised that he had to deal with so much public criticism of what he said. And the other counter I would say is it, God knows for politicians to accuse academics of hiding behind jargon strikes me as one of the most cynical and awful and, and idiotic things imaginable. As, as George Ordwell wrote this wonderful essay about politics in the English language where, you know, he basically derides the, the notion that politics creates its own language, which doesn't necessarily mean anything to anyone else. And indeed, I, I, you know, there's a whole variety of phrases that are used by politicians that are basically very polite ways of talking about killing other people. And so they're in no position to criticize how academics talk. Yeah, but there's, there's also a funny story in that chapter about how 
each time a fellow academic tells you that you're a good writer, you're pretty sure it's a backhanded compliment. The idea being that the reason that your writings are so prolific and that you get out there and that, and that a lot of people read your stuff is because the writing itself is great and it covers up ideas that are too simple to be taken seriously. Yes. Uh, and I still have this insecurity and it was actually, it was, it was, although I will say it was very cathartic to get it out on the page. Um, but it's true. I remember being told early in my career, oh, you're such a good writer. And I really began to look at that as sort of a backhanded compliment of, you know, yeah, you're a good writer, which is, by the way, why you're published. It's not like you've got any real ideas or anything, which I think, by the way, confuses the relationship between good writing and good ideas, that good writing clarifies ideas. It doesn't uh, obfuscate it. Right. Yeah, I totally agree with that. Let's talk uh, about think tanks. Uh, You mentioned the story earlier about New America and open markets. There's something in the book that I didn't know, which was that the financial crisis ended up leading to quite a bit of a funding crunch for a lot of think tanks, and that in the aftermath of the financial crisis, they ended up becoming more reliant on corporations. And the worry, of course, there is that corporations that fund think tanks are in a way trying to launder their ideas, um, ideas that are obviously self-regarding or self-interested through the bipartisan or nonpartisan, you know, washing mechanism or whatever, washing machine uh, that are think tanks. Anyways, that's the concern. Uh, Why don't you sort of tell us what the reality of it is? Right. So there's no denying that that particularly for think tanks interested in foreign policy, the years between 2001 and 2008 were boom times. Post 9-11, there was suddenly this huge spike of interest in foreign policy, both from the government and from more traditional foundations. With the 2008 financial crisis, budgets, the sort of funding from those more traditional sources of income tanked just at the moment that a lot of think tanks sort of had leveraged themselves up in terms of building new infrastructure, building new buildings, hiring a lot of support staff, and so on and so forth. So what a lot of think tanks wound up doing at that point was looking for new sources of income, and they basically found it in one of three areas. Uh, The first was corporations. Um, As you say, corporations, if they fund a think tank, that is much easier for them to do than if they fund a lobbying group because they have to report that money um, and it it looks uh, differently. They also begin to look from foreign governments. Um, So there are a whole host of foreign governments that have fund a variety of U.S. think tanks. Uh, And my favorite fact in there, which the New York Times, to its credit, got, was a memo uh, written by the Norwegian Foreign Ministry justifying the funding of think tanks in the United States by saying, this is the best way we have as a small country to influence U.S. foreign policy is by influencing what a think tank does, which totally made sense in in the context of Norway. But once it became public, taints the think tanks that, that accept the money. And then another category are sort of more partisan donors, you know, donors that have not traditionally thought of funding think tanks, but are willing to do so if those think tanks then engage in sort of partisan political attacks. The result is that these think tank, a lot of these think tanks have encountered a lot of scandals that led, lead to accusations of either actual conflicts of interest or far more likely appearances of conflict of interest. And what's interesting is that in some ways that the real problem that think tanks are suffering from is the degree of hypocrisy involved, which is on the one hand, they put themselves forward as being nonprofit institutions offering sort of neutral technocratic expertise, but there is no denying that the the groups that fund them also help to determine what are they going to research. And there are genuine questions, as the, the case of New America reveals, of to what extent does the funding affect the kind of results that they're going to generate within their research. Now, I think think tanks have, have sort of moved down the learning curve a little bit on this, where you're now seeing think tanks being much more transparent in terms of saying who they're getting money from, which in some ways d- helps diffuse the situation. If they say up front, look, we're getting money from these people, then no one can accuse them of trying to hide it. Other think tanks are trying to diversify their sources of funding so they're no longer reliant on one source or another. And I also think you're seeing think tanks developing sort of codes of conduct for researchers as a way to prevent them from enmeshing a larger think tank in a scandal. So I'm a non-resident senior fellow at, at the Brookings Institution, and the requirements I have to – the hoops I have to jump through to reassure them that I'm not tainting their reputation by being a non-resident fellow have gone up with each passing year, which suggests that they're cognizant of this. Yeah, I, I, I like those ideas uh, that you just mentioned, the idea of transparency, uh, the diversity – of the funding stream matters too. But I want to move on to, because we only have time for uh, one last segment here, which is uh, 
the private market. I want to start by asking you about an idea that McKinsey put forth, I believe, in the mid to late 90s, known as the War for Talent. Uh, This was essentially the idea that a company should just look for the smartest, most impressive people and then let them do whatever the hell they wanted, right? Uh, Have very minimal checks on its talent, uh, almost as if companies should all be populated by like characters out of a Dostoevsky novel. Let them commit murder for the greater good. It'll be fine. Don't (laughs) worry about it. You know, Malcolm Gladwell brutally criticized this idea um, in an essay in The New Yorker, essentially blaming the idea for the culture at Enron that led to its big scandal. But it's really incredible just how much widespread acceptance that idea got just because it was something put out by a management consultant or the, I don't know if it was the subsidiary arm of a management consultant. But anyways, to tell us a little bit about that and sort of where these uh, private actors are with their supply of ideas and how successful they're being in getting them out there. Right. So one of the more interesting things I think I found in researching the book was that I did want to talk about the private sector because I had encountered these these actors. You know, I'd gone to enough conferences now where you've got people from, you know, the McKinsey's or the Goldman Sachs's or the Deloitte's of the world. And to be fair, I, I think they bring something to the table. I don't mean to, you know, belittle their contribution. And one of the fascinating things, I think, is the degree to which, much like think tanks or universities, Management consultants, for example, do have academic roots that if you look at the sort of pre-depression years, almost all the major consulting firms were created or founded by professors that had strong ties or were either members of academic departments or had strong ties to particular academic departments. But, you know, in the modern context, you know, the very term thought leadership comes from the consulting world. And I think the premise of that is the notion that if management consultants are seen as coming up with new ideas that are ways to sort of remanage or reconfigure how to how to manage uh, your corporation, that that almost acts as sort of a, 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 a slogan or sort of eye candy that brings people in. And then as a result, they hire those people for more concrete for-profit services. And this is also true in, let's say, the political risk industry, you know, whether you're talking about the Eurasia groups of the world or what have you, one of the things that they do in their public work, and I had someone who works for the firm just say this out loud to me, is their goal is to, and I apologize for the the profanity coming, what they try to do is scare the shit out of people. They're not necessarily being accurate in terms of scaring the shit out of people, but by doing so, it gets them in the front door. And by getting them in the front door, then they can do presumably the more serious or sober analysis. But what it means is that the public sees a distorted view of what a lot of this sort of private sector work is. And I I would argue that in some ways these corporations bring two advantages to the table that groups like think tanks or universities don't have. The first is is that very often a lot of the data that they're relying upon to build their analysis is proprietary. You know, the McKinsey's of the world – are, are often presenting a lot of stuff based on their own consulting work. And that's fair. And in some ways, that is a comparative advantage they bring. But it also means in contrast to academics and think tanks, no external authority can check their work or referee it. Um, so we have no idea whether the data they're relying upon is good or not. So that's one thing. The second and more important thing is, is they're sort of they have an implicit bias, which is for-profit firms are very explicit in saying, we're doing this because we think it's going to make money, or we think it will attract more business, which will therefore make money. And I think among both publics and policymakers, there is a perception that if you were dealing with a McKinsey you know, consultant or someone who works for the Eurasia Group, that the very fact that they are in existence, the very fact that they can charge money for their services means that what they do must be valuable in the way that a nonprofit think tank cannot make this claim or a nonprofit university can't make this claim. And so this gives them a clear advantage in the marketplace of ideas. And it fits right into the ideas industry notion of passing the market test, right? Yes, exactly. There is a really annoyingly self-perpetuating element to it where it's like, hey, if other people have paid me for these ideas, therefore you should pay me for them too, whether or not those ideas have merit. But uh, Dan, we're going to actually, in the interest of time, skip uh, the final part of your book where you talk about blogs and social media. It's really great, especially the sort of ongoing war between Clayton Christensen and Jill Lepore. Everybody definitely needs to read it. But I want to <laughs> close instead uh, by asking you about uh, the Dark Knight theory that you uh, <laughs> expound at the end. And 
what it means about the ideas industry. Maybe tell us what it also uh, tells you about your own career and your own uh, right. work and your own sort of straddling of the divide between the marketplace of ideas and the ideas industry. So I can finally reveal the real reason for writing this book, which was primarily therapeutic on my part, which is to say that I always knew this was going to be the last chapter of the book when I came up with the idea. So the Dark Knight theory, it comes from a line in, in the movie The Dark Knight where Harvey Dent says some, somewhere in the beginning of the movie, you know, you either die a hero or live long enough to see yourself become the villain. And in the marketplace of ideas, what I think that means is is that, you know, you either die a sort of noble intellectual or you live and become successful long enough to become everything that you despise in the marketplace of ideas. Um, so, you know, I remember when I was a graduate student, you know, getting a political science degree, how annoyed I would be when I would encounter sort of superstars in my field. And they might be somewhat nice with, you know, to me, but, you know, in front of me, but they would be brusque. Or then I would bump into them a week later and they would have no idea who I am or they would be unresponsive to emails and so on and so forth. And I thought, oh, my God, that's so rude. I can't believe, you know, I'll never be like that. And to be clear, I don't claim to be an intellectual superstar. I, I would describe myself as sort of upper middle class in the intellectual firmament. But I've, I've gotten enough of a taste of the good life, as it were, to realize that, you know, I've become busier than I would like to be, that I have, you know, become asked to do so many, you know, I'm, I'm pulled in a million different directions to the point where sometimes I'm horrible with email. I don't respond to my students as quickly as I should. I don't necessarily deal with criticism as well as I should. And it becomes easier to dismiss certain forms of criticism, not as actual criticism, but as just, you know, trolling or people who are bitter at my own success or things like that. And it's led to a certain amount of self-loathing. It, it, it's sort of a recognition of, you, you develop enough of a, a sort of mental callus against criticism so that you wind up putting forward ideas and ignore the criticism that is levied against you even when that criticism is warranted and, and justified. And so I, I sort of close with the book by saying well, there's you know a couple of ways my, my story could end, which is I could truly become – you know, everything, the, the the kind of intellectual superstar that writes a book and then makes a documentary based on the book and then makes a fictional movie based on the documentary based on the book and, and you know, jet sets but doesn't necessarily treat people well or carve out a more sustainable path, one where I potentially learn to say no um, to certain things because I have want to have a life of some kind or another. And basically what I'm pleading for is the notion that there can be a degree of sustainability that one can be a successful intellectual, one can be an intellectual that, that even makes money, but doesn't make that the be-all, end-all of their existence and also you know, retains their degree of intellectual respectability. Yeah, and, and there's a follow-up to that question, uh, and it'll be my last question. Uh, and so long as we're treating the end of this episode as therapy, I will relate to you my own tiny, tiny, tiny experience with what I think uh, you're talking about now, I'm neither a thought leader nor a public intellectual, but every once in a while, I also do like a media round on something that either I've written about or it's something that I cover in my work. And late in 2016, right, before the presidential election had taken place, it was the week after the Access Hollywood tape of Donald Trump had come out. Right. I was on a CNBC show called The Closing Bell, and Trump's poll numbers were tanking. But even more than that, I just assumed that it was game over because here we had tangible evidence of what he meant when he was saying all these ridiculous things. Because until that point, a lot of people were kind of dismissive, a lot of Trump supporters, I mean, because they were saying, well, he's just doing that to appeal to the base. He's just doing that as an identity play. He doesn't mean anything by it. And it seemed to me like this was finally video evidence, okay, that he really did mean all that terrible stuff he was saying. I thought there was no way he could come back. And the host of the show at one point said, well, you know, the polls aren't really closing as much as you know we thought they would in Ohio. And I sort of cut off the conversation. And I said, hang on a second. Look, it's over. OK. And then and these were my exact words at the time. I said people wouldn't trust Trump near their kids, much less pull the lever for him. <laughs> right now, in addition to the problem that nobody pulls levers anymore, obviously, I turned out to be dead, dead wrong. And Later on, I was sort of reflecting on that, and there were a few lessons that I took away from it, a few that were more obvious than others. The obvious ones were stay in your lane, all right? I cover economics and economic policy, not politics. Number two was don't make predictions. Number three was if you're going to break those two rules, don't do it with any certainty. Make sure you layer it with caveats. But number four 
was that the temptation to break those other three rules was yeah. enormous, <laughs> right? And I knew yeah. all of those rules going in. I'm usually the guy who cautions other people not to break those rules, and right. I broke them myself. And I think what you're talking about here is temptation, right? It's mm-hmm. flattering on a human level. When somebody says you're an expert in all these other things, we'd love for you to comment on this next thing where you don't have that kind of expertise. And when you do that, you're essentially becoming, as you said, less sustainable, less credible, right? The problem with all this is that when you are somebody who's out there doing these things, right, you are incentivized to do those things. And so by becoming more sustainable, at least in the moment, in the short term, you're going against all the incentives right. that are in play, whether that means more status, more fame, more money. And so I guess my last question to you is, uh, are you hopeful that people who, say, read your book or who are aware of the arguments or listen to this podcast will actually be able to like overcome the incentive schemes that we have in place and do that more noble thing, that thing that um, leads to a more sustainable career, but which is really, really tough to maintain? So the way I would put it is that I think the first step towards improving the ideas industry is self-awareness. And if more people reading my book leads to self-awareness on this point, the recognition of, God, it's it's so much easier to sound confident even if you're not actually confident. The recognition that you know the the elimination of caveats of yeah you don't you don't say I think this is going to happen you say this is going to happen that's done we know this is going to happen you know fighting against those impulses is I think the first step towards creating a more constructive marketplace of ideas where people can disagree with each other but can also acknowledge hey I might be wrong and you you know if this happens you will be proven right in a way that w- that will force me to rethink the way I'm thinking about things. And that's the end of this week's Encore episode. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with a brand new episode of Alpha Chat.